0: I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. Tonight, episode three of the 1998 Massey Lectures, Becoming Human, written and presented by the distinguished Canadian writer and social thinker, Jean Vanier. The Massey Lectures are co-sponsored by CBC Radio and Massey College of the University of Toronto. Lecturers are invited to give a series of five talks on contemporary issues, for a wide general audience. Since the lectures began in 1961, Massey lecturers have included such prominent thinkers as Claude Lévi-Strauss, Carlos Fuentes, Doris Lessing, Noam Chomsky, and Northrop Fry. The book of the 1995 Massey lectures, The Unconscious Civilization by John Ralston Saul, won the Governor General's Prize for Nonfiction. This year's Massey Lecturer, Jean Vanier, is the founder of L'Arche, the international organization famed for its innovative methods of working with mentally handicapped people. Jean Vanier is also a prolific writer, and in his many books he has developed the idea of what it means to be a good individual, and what it means to live in harmony with the world and with God. In this year's Massy Lectures, Jean Vanier discusses the necessity of conceiving a new vision of humanity, a society in which the gifts of all, particularly those of the weak and the powerless, are a common heritage of equal value. To record these lectures, we travel to Jean Vanier's home in Trolley Breuil in the north of France, where he established the very first Lache community over 30 years ago. Because the lectures were recorded on location, from time to time you'll hear the sounds of real life, including birds and the occasional car. In the two previous episodes, Jean Vanier spoke of human loneliness as the place from which we begin the search for the new, and of the importance of a sense of belonging in our idea of self and of society. Tonight on Ideas... From Exclusion to Inclusion, A Path of Healing, Episode 3 of Becoming Human, the 1998 Massey Lectures. And here's Jean Vanier.
1: In Luke's Gospel, Jesus tells a moving story. There was a beggar named Lazarus who lived in the streets. He was hungry and his legs were covered with sores. Living opposite him, In a beautiful house was a rich man who used to give big parties for his friends. Lazarus would have liked to have eaten some of the crumbs that fell from the table, but the dogs ate them up. One day Lazarus died and went to the place of peace in the heart of Abraham. The rich man also died, and he went into the place of torment. Looking up, he saw Lazarus radiant with peace, and he cried out, Father Abraham! Please send Lazarus down to put some water on my lips, for I'm in pain. Abraham responded, It's impossible. Between you and him there is an abyss that nobody can cross. He could have added, just as there had been an abyss between you and him during your life on earth. This story of Lazarus tells us a lot about today's world, where there is a huge abyss between those who have food, money and comfort, and those who are hungry or have no place of their own. I remember seeing children in Calcutta, their noses glued to the window of a luxurious restaurant. From time to time the doorman would shoo them away. The rich, and that includes me and most of you listening to this talk, do not like to see dirty beggars staring at them. Haven't we all felt embarrassment and fear in front of those who are hungry? One day in Paris, I was accosted by a rather disheveled woman who shouted at me, Give me some money! We started to talk. I learned that she had come out of a psychiatric hospital. I realized quite quickly that she had immense needs, and I became frightened. I had an appointment, I said, and I didn't want to be late. So I gave her a little money and went on my way, just like the Pharisee and the Levite in the Gospel parable of the Good Samaritan. I was frightened of being swallowed up by her pain and by her need. What is this abyss that separates people? Why are we unable to look Lazarus straight in the eye and to listen to him? I suspect that we exclude Lazarus because we are frightened that our hearts will be touched if we enter into a relationship with him. As we listen to Lazarus and hear his cry of pain, we will discover that he is a human being. We might be touched by the story of his life and his misfortunes. What happens when our hearts are touched? We might want to do something to comfort and help him, to alleviate his pain, and where will that lead us? As we enter into dialogue with the beggar, we risk entering into an adventure. Because Lazarus does not only need money, but also a place to stay, medical treatment, maybe work, and even more, he needs friendship. That is why it is dangerous to enter into a relationship with the Lazaruses of our world. If we do, our lives will be changed. All of us are more or less locked up in our own cultures, in our habits, even in our friendships and places of belonging. If I become the friend of a beggar, I rock the boat. Friends may feel uncomfortable, even threatened by my new ways. Perhaps they feel challenged to do likewise, so they can become aggressive, They may criticize the foolish, so-called utopian ways of the one in their midst who befriends a beggar. I'm beginning to discover how fear is a terrible, motivating force in all our lives. We are frightened of those who are different. We are frightened of failure and of rejection. And I have become increasingly aware, not only of my own fears, but of the fears of others. Fear is at the root of all forms of exclusion, just as trust is at the root of all forms of inclusion. The history of humanity is a history of wars, oppression, slavery and rejection. Every society and every time has created its own forms of exclusion. There is an endless list of those whom we may exclude, and every one of us, we may be sure, is on someone's list. The homeless, the sick, the dying, the young, the weak, the handicapped, the stranger, the immigrant. I have been living for more than 30 years with men and women who have been excluded from society. I have seen firsthand how fear is a great and terrible motivator of human actions. Through my experience with these men and women with mental handicaps, I have become more aware of how fear is at the heart of prejudice and exclusion. We are all frightened of those who are different, those who challenge our authority, our certitudes, and our value system. We're all so frightened of losing what is important for us, the things that give us life, security, and status in society. We are frightened of change, and I suspect we're even more frightened of our own hearts. Fear makes us push those with mental handicaps into far-off, dismal institutions. Fear prevents all of us with the price of a meal in our pocket from sharing with the Lazaruses of the world. It is fear, ironically, that prevents us from being most human. That is, it prevents us from growing and changing. Fear wants nothing to change. Fear demands the status quo, and the status quo leads to death. Fear always finds its object. If I feel insecure in myself, I will almost always find some scapegoat for my fear find someone or something that I can turn into the object of my fears. But there are some broad categories for the objects of fear, and I think it's worth looking at some of them. First of all, fear of dissidents. There has always been a fear of the dissident, that is to say of the one who seems to threaten the existing order. Those who fear the dissident are those who have a vested interest in the maintenance of that order. Frequently, money and power are at the root of such interests. When political leaders, kings most frequently, were seen as the representatives of God on earth, protectors of truth, of religion, of morality, then whoever opposed such leaders were necessarily regarded as evil, agents of the devil. If the status quo was ordained by God, ergo, whoever stood against the status quo stood against God and the natural order. It is in the nature of power to resist change. The principle of the divine right of kings goes back at least as far as the first man, and it probably was a man who sought to establish the continuity of his power as a natural law. We live in a more secular time, but the divine right of kings has adapted and transformed itself into the divine right of anybody in power. There is a deeper point here beyond the self-aggrandizement of the powerful. Leaders consider themselves as generally in the right. It is part of the paradigm we have created that if you have succeeded in making your way to the top, then, by definition, by the law of natural selection, the values for which you stand have been authenticated. That is why it always seems entirely reasonable for the powerful to seek to quell anyone who opposes them. Those who oppose create disorder. They run against the natural order. The only point to be made about all this is to note that it is important that leaders listen to dissent and try to understand where it's coming from and what is true in it. If history teaches us nothing else, it is this that power is borrowed. At best, power is something granted, not something taken. That means in Western democracies at any rate that those who have power need the gifts of discernment and judgment because if we recognize the temporary nature of power, then equally we need to recognize what in the activity of dissent is valuable. The principle at issue is the temporary nature of power and the necessity of service and humility, the necessity of seeing what truth is being cried out in an act of protest. Second, fear of difference. In the last lecture, I talked about the way in which belonging can be a stepping stone to life, but also the way in which belonging can stifle and actually prevent life. Human nature is to want to belong to groups of like-minded creatures, to those of the same culture, who have the same goals and interests. We know each other, we can work together, we feel safe together. Those who are different disturb us. Who are these who are different? Some are different because of their poverty, brokenness, handicaps or loneliness. They cry out to us for help, these millions named Lazarus in our world. Often they are in discomfort while others live in comfort. Their cry becomes dangerous then for those of us who live in comfort. If we listen to their cry and open up our hearts, it will cost us something. So we pretend not to hear the cry. Those who are different are the strangers among us. There are many ways of being different. One can be different by virtue of values, culture, race, language, education, or religious or political orientation. And while most of us can find it stimulating, or at least interesting, to meet a stranger for a short while, it's a very different thing from truly opening up and allowing a stranger to become a friend. This fear of the difference is very marked when it comes to people with mental handicaps. I remember when I first met such people. Father Thomas Philippe, the French priest who became my spiritual accompanier when I came out of the Navy, and who was instrumental in the founding of Lash, had invited me to meet his new friends in a small institution where he was the chaplain. At the time, I was teaching philosophy at St. Michael's College in Toronto. I accepted his invitation, but nevertheless I was very anxious. How was I going to communicate with people who could not talk? If they could talk, what would we talk about? I was fearful of not being able to cope with the situation or of not knowing what to do, or of being inadequate. When we have constructed our lives around particular values of knowledge, power, and social esteem, it is difficult for us to accept those who cannot live by the same sets of values. It is as if we are threatened by such people. The social stigmas around people with mental handicaps are strong. There is an implicit question – If someone cannot live the values of knowledge and power, the values of the greater society, we ask ourselves, can that person be fully human? People with mental handicaps are generally put at the bottom of the scale of humanity. When I first encountered them seriously at L'Arche, I believed in love. But for me, love meant generosity, a force to do good for others. At that time, I did not yet have the idea of how one might love intelligently how by our love we help others to discover their own intrinsic value gradually through Lars, i began to see the value of the communion of hearts and of a love that empowers that helps others to stand up a love that shows itself in humility and trust if our society has difficulty in functioning if we are continually confronted by a world in crisis full of violence, of fear, of abuse, I suggest it is because we are not clear about what it means to be human. We have reduced the faculties of humanity to two, knowledge and power. We have disregarded the heart, seeing it only as a symbol of weakness, the center of sentimentality and emotion, instead of as a powerhouse of love that can reorient us from our self-centeredness revealing to us and to others the basic beauty of humanity, empowering us to grow. We've talked about fear of dissidence and fear of difference. Another fear that drives us is the fear of failure. The fear of failure, of feeling helpless and unable to cope, had been built into me ever since my childhood. I had to be a success. I had to prove my worth. I had to be right. This need to succeed and to be accepted, even admired, by my parents and by those whom I considered my superiors, was a strong motivating force in me, and this is a motivation which is at the heart of many human endeavors. This will to please is obviously a valuable motivation, but it also has its flip side. Everyone cannot succeed at the same entrance exam. Many must fail. And failure can and does break people. This need to succeed, coupled with the fear of failure, can make us choose to relate only to those who like and admire us, those who look on us as winners. And, of course, we recognize others playing the same game. Fear of failure, of not coping with a situation, of not being able to relate to another person, is at the heart of this fear of the different, the strange, the stranger. This fear is also the fear of rejection, how to be and to walk in unknown territory. Then there is the fear of loss and change. Why do the rich and powerful, you and I in short, fear so much the Lazaruses in our midst? Is it not because we are frightened of having to share our wealth, frightened of losing something? It is easy to give a few coins to a beggar. It is more difficult to give what is necessary to maintain our standard of living. We feel so inadequate in the face of poverty. What can we do to change so many seemingly impossible situations? When I rushed away from that woman in Paris who had just come out of a psychiatric hospital, it was because I did not really know what to do, what was appropriate. I had this fear of being sucked into a vortex of poverty. To open oneself is an enormously risky enterprise. It risks status, power, money, even friendship, the recognition and belongingness that we so prize. For a number of years, a married couple, friends of mine, were close with a number of other couples. The group was concerned with the increasing gap between the rich and the poor, and they wanted to do something about it. My friends became impatient with all the discussion and they decided to do something alone. They left the group and went to live in a poor area of the city. The others in the group saw them as traitors to the group and shunned them. To me, this is a reminder that when we get committed to those who are excluded or marginalized, we run the risk of being criticized by our friends and family. To leave the culture of friends and family is like going into another world. We all need a certain amount of security in order to be able to live peacefully. We also need to actually feel secure. This sense of security comes from the way we live our lives. It comes from the presence and reinforcement we get from friends and family. It comes from our place of work and through daily routines. In this context, the unexpected can provoke a crisis. To lose the known and to move on to the unknown can mean a terrible loss for us. To live such loss, one needs a lot of inner strength. To give food to a beggar who knocks on the door can be quite an easy thing to do. But if he keeps coming back, with his friends, then what do we do? We can become totally lost and insecure. We are at sea with no horizon, in unknown territory, without a map. We are frightened that the beggar is calling us to change our lifestyle. We're all frightened of the ugly, the dirty, that which smells bad. We all want to turn away from anything that reveals the failure, pain, sickness and death beneath the brightly painted surface of our ordered lives. Civilization is at least in part about pretending that things are better than they are. We all want to be in a happy place where everyone is nice and good and can fend for themselves we shun our own weakness and the weakness of others. We refuse to listen to the cry of the needy. How easy it is to fall into the illusion of a beautiful world because we have lost trust in our capacity to make of our broken world a place that can become more beautiful. What is the origin of these terrible fears that so hinder us in the making of our hearts desire a better world? In his book, Le Chemin de L'Homme, the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber says that with each person who comes into the world, there is something new that has never existed before, something totally new and unique. It is this unique and exceptional quality that each person is called to develop. But how can children feel they are unique if they have to fit into their parents' norms? It is only when children are accepted as they are With their unique gifts and limits when they are listened to and respected that they will be able later on to accept the qualities of others love and respect like fear and prejudice are legacies passed on from one person to another the movement from seeking approval to taking responsibility to being open to those who are different implies a shift of consciousness it is as if a shell is broken which gradually permits the real person to emerge. One major reason for our mutual distrust, for our propensity to gang together in mutually exclusive groups, is that most of us experience love in only the most imperfect way. When I discover that I am accepted and loved as a person, with my strengths and weaknesses, when I discover that I carry within myself a secret, the secret of my uniqueness, then I can begin to open up to others and respect their secret. The fear of others begins to dissolve. Inclusion, friendship, and a feeling of brotherhood, sisterhood begin to happen. As we become more conscious of the uniqueness of others, we become aware of our common humanity. We're all fundamentally the same, no matter what our age, gender, race, culture, religion, limits, or handicaps may be. We all have vulnerable hearts and need to be loved and appreciated. We have all been wounded in our hearts and have lost trust in what is deepest in us. We all want to be valued and to be able to develop our capacities and to grow to greater freedom. Until we realize that we belong to a common humanity, that we need each other, that we can help each other, we will continue to hide behind feelings of elitism and superiority and behind the walls of prejudice, judgment and disdain which they engender. Each human being, however small or weak, has something to bring to humanity. In our beautiful universe there are suns, stars, as well as the multitude of little species and plants which are important because of their beauty, their healing qualities and their capacity to give life. Every part of the body is important and has a role to play in our well-being as a person. In the same way, each person, big or small, has a role to play in the world. As we start to meet others as persons, as we begin to listen to each other and to each other's story, things begin to change. We no longer judge each other according to concepts of power and knowledge or according to group identity but according to these personal heart-to-heart encounters, we begin the movement from exclusion to inclusion, from fear to trust, from closeness to openness, from judgment and prejudice to forgiveness and to understanding. It is a movement of the heart. We begin to see each other as brothers and sisters in humanity, We are no longer governed by the logic of fear, but by the logic of the heart.
0: I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on CBC Radio 1. Tonight, you're listening to Episode 3 of the 1998 Massey Lectures, Becoming Human, presented by the distinguished writer and social thinker Jean Vanier.
1: How do we move from exclusion to inclusion? When I talk about inclusion of people, whether they are those with disabilities or beggars like Lazarus, or people suffering from AIDS, I'm not talking only about starting up special schools or residences, or of creating good soup kitchens or new hospitals. These are, of course, necessary. I'm not just saying that we should be kind to such people because they're human beings, nor is it a question of normalizing them in order that they can become like us participate in church services, go to the movies and the local swimming pool. When I speak of the inclusion of those who are marginalized, I am affirming that they have a gift to give to all, to each of us as individuals, to the larger forms of human organization and to society in general. The excluded, I believe, live certain values that we all need to discover and to live ourselves before we can become truly human. It is not just a question of performing good deeds for those who are excluded, but of being open and vulnerable to them in order to receive the life that they can offer. It is to become their friend. If we start to include the disadvantaged in our lives and enter into a heartfelt relationship with them, they will change things in us. They will begin to call upon us to be people of mutual trust who take time to listen and to be with each other. They will call us out from our individualism and need for power into belonging to each other and being open to others. They will break down the prejudices and protective walls which give rise to exclusion in the first place. They will open us up to others they will start to affect our human organizations, revealing new ways of being and walking together. So the one-way street, where those on top tell those at the bottom what to do, what to think, how to be, becomes a two-way street, where we listen to what they, the outsiders, have to say to us, and we accept what they have to give us, that is, a simpler and more profound understanding of what it means to be truly human. If we start to see people at the bottom as friends, as people with gifts to bring to others, then the social pyramid, with the powerful, the knowledgeable and the wealthy on top, becomes a place of belonging, where each person finds their place and where we live in mutual trust. Is this a utopian vision? If it is lived out at the grassroots in families, communities and other places of belonging, this vision can gradually permeate our societies in order to humanize them. I'm not suggesting for a moment that each one of us must welcome into our homes all those who are marginalized. I am suggesting that if each one of us, with our gifts and weaknesses, our capacities and our needs, opens our hearts to a few people who are different and become their friends, receive life from them, our societies would change. This is the way of the heart. The heart, the metaphorical heart, the basis of all relationships, is what is deepest in each one of us. It is my heart that bonds itself to another heart, and we are led together out of the restricted belonging which creates exclusion to meet and love others just as they are. The heart is the place where we meet others, suffer and rejoice with them, it is the place where we can identify and be in solidarity with them. Whenever we love, we are not alone. The heart is the place of our oneness with others. It is only once a heart has become mature in love that it can take the road of insecurity, putting its hand in the hand of God. Then it can meet other people, inside and outside of the place of belonging. Then it can meet people who have been excluded, It is the heart that helps us to discover the common humanity that links us even greater than the humanity that bonds us as part of a group. The heart then forgoes the need to control others. The free heart can free others. Heart-to-heart relationships where God is present are then more important than the approbation of society. Belonging to a group is important, it is the earth in which we grow. Sometimes we have to forego group approval and even accept rejection, if this is what happens, in order to follow what the ancients called scientia codis, the science of the heart, which gives the inner strength to put truth flowing from experience over the need for approval. The science of the heart permits us to be vulnerable to others, not to fear them, but to listen to them, To see their beauty and value, to understand them in all their fears, needs, and hopes. It permits us to accept others just as they are and to believe that they too can grow to greater beauty. Such a heart has become a compassionate heart which sees a presence of God in others. The mature heart does not seek to force belief on others. It does not seek to impose a faith. The mature heart listens for what another's heart is called to be. It no longer judges or condemns. It is a heart of forgiveness. When we are in communion with another, we become open and vulnerable to them. We reveal our needs and our weaknesses to each other. Power and cleverness call forth admiration, but also a certain separation, a sense of distance. We are reminded of who we are not, of what we cannot do. On the other hand, sharing weaknesses and needs calls us together into oneness. We welcome those who love us into our heart. In this communion, we discover the deepest part of our being, the need to be loved and to have someone who trusts us and appreciates us and who cares least of all for our capacity to work or to be clever and interesting. When we discover we are loved in this way, the masks or barriers behind which we hide are dropped new life flows. We no longer have to prove our worth. We are free to be ourselves. We find a new wholeness and a new inner unity. I love to watch little children playing and chatting amongst themselves. They do not care what people think. They do not have to try to appear to be clever and important. They know they're loved and are free to be themselves. As they grow into adolescence and adulthood, they become more self-conscious, They lose a certain freedom which they might find again later when they rediscover that they are loved and accepted just as they are, and are no longer obsessed by what others may think of them. Spiritual masters in sacred scripture often tell stories to reveal a truth and to awaken hearts. Jesus spoke in parables. Hasidic Jews and Sufi teachers tell tales. Hindu scripture is full of stories. Stories seem to awaken new energies of love. They tell us a great truth in simple personal terms and make us long for light. Stories have a strange power of attraction. When we tell stories, hearts are touched. If we talk about theories or speak about ideas, the mind may assimilate them, but the heart remains untouched. When we hear stories of others who have lived what we have lived, Stories of how others have risen up from the dirt of life and found hope. We too find hope. Stories of transformation from death to life sow seeds of hope. Let me tell you some stories. First, let me tell you about Antonio, who has brought many people into the way of the heart. Antonio came to our community in Trolley when he was 20 years old, after many years in a hospital. He could not walk, speak or use his hands. He was fragile in his body, needing extra oxygen to breathe. He was a weak and fragile man in many ways, but he had an incredible smile and beautiful shining eyes. There was no anger or depression in him. That is not to say that he didn't get peeved from time to time, especially if his bathwater was too hot or too cold, or if the assistants forgot about him, What is important is that he had accepted his limits and handicaps. He had accepted himself just as he was. Antonio could not love by being generous, giving things to people or doing things for them. He himself was too needy. He lived a love of trust. In this way, he touched many people's hearts. When one loves with trust, one does not give things, one gives oneself, and so calls forth a communion of hearts. And so Antonio touched and awakened the hearts of many assistants who came to live in his house. He led them into the way of the heart. Often they would tell me in words to this effect, Antonio has changed my life. He has led me out of a society of competition where one has to be strong and aggressive into a world of tenderness and mutuality, where each person, strong or weak, can exercise their gifts. A few years ago, a number of people from our communities went on pilgrimage to Rome. We had an audience with Pope John Paul II. While we were waiting for him to arrive, Fabio, a young man with disabilities, walked up and sat down in the Pope's chair. It was obviously the best chair in the room, which is why Fabio felt so attracted to it. Bishops who were close by did not know what to do. An assistant, however, help Fabio discover another chair, which was quite good too. I would never have dared to do what Fabio did. Like many of us, I tend to conform to what is expected of me, and I am fearful of going against the norms or of what my superiors want of me. Is there a fear in me of being seen as guilty if I go against the norm? Or am I fearful of someone shouting at me angrily? Some people like to rock the boat to do the unexpected, unusual thing just to shock others and draw their attention. People with disabilities, however, do not go against the norm to shock others. It is just their way of being, flowing from their intuitive sense of inner freedom. People with disabilities have a freedom to get angry and then to ask for forgiveness when they realize they have hurt someone. Then it's finished. There is no smoldering fire ready to flare up again at the least provocation. The authenticity of their contrition always touches me. Is it because they have little awareness of time and history, of the moral bridle that memory places on our actions? It is the remembrance of things past and of the previous consequences of our actions that governs many of our present actions. Many of those with a mental handicap, however, are not people of the past or even of the future, but of the present moment. They have no big plans for tomorrow. Plans are more for people who have greater autonomy and the capacity of leading their lives as they want. Those with disabilities do not cry out for power or success. Their energies are used for seeking out the warmth of relationships. I notice how many of us have our eye on the clock, our next meeting, a talk to give, deadlines to meet. People with mental handicaps do not seem to be governed by clocks in the same way. They tend to live more fully in the present moment, sometimes enjoying it, sometimes angry with it, trusting in the presence of people who appreciate them. When assistants arrive in our communities, they're often filled with the prejudices of the competitive society to which they belong. Then they discover Antonio with his heart of love, his gentleness, his acceptance of self and his abandonment to the present moment, hidden behind all the weakness and brokenness of his body. Then they realize more fully the intolerance, the lack of love, and even the cruelty of their culture and maybe even of their church. They begin to realize that to become fully human is not a question of following what everyone else does, of conforming to social norms or of being admired and honoured in a hierarchical society. It is to become free, to be more fully oneself, to follow one's deepest conscience, to seek truth and to love people as they are. When we enter into a personal relationship with those who are different or on the fringe of society, it's amazing how we are then able to look more critically at our own culture, we begin to see the deep prejudices that exist. Let me give you an example. Not long ago, I met a man who had come to our community quite a few years ago. He is from an Algerian family and has a slight mental handicap. Because of his abilities and because he worked hard, he was able to find a job and to live on his own. We met each other at the train station and traveled to Paris together. Being with him... I noticed how sensitive I was to the way people looked at him. I could feel where there was fear or dislike in their eyes because of his North African features. When we ally ourselves with the excluded in society, not only are we enabled to see people as people and to join them in their struggle for justice, to work for community and places of belonging, but also we develop the critical tools for seeing what is wrong in our society. This lowering of inner barriers, which are our prejudices, is an important factor in the growth towards personal freedom. It is not easy to cast a critical eye upon one's own culture. Individual identity is so linked to culture that any form of critical judgment in this respect can endanger the stability of our inner world. We are like children who have put all their trust in their parents, but when we see our parents doing wrong, then our inner world collapses, we lose our reference points and feel lost. Wisdom begins when we not only have a critical eye upon ourselves, but also upon the group to which we belong. It is only then that we begin to want to work for change. Becoming a friend of a marginalized, excluded person is already an act of self imposed exile from most of the world. It is liberating, an act of freedom. It is a path to personal growth where one proclaims a new set of values. It is the first step towards living new values, but it does not in itself constitute a transformation. Xavier Le Pichon is a well known French geologist, member of the Académie des Sciences and professor at Le Collège de France. In his fascinating book, Aux racines de l'homme, The Roots of Humanity, he shows that through the different stages in the evolution of humanity, we have become more human as we opened up to the weak and to the reality of suffering and death. That is also my personal experience. As the human heart opens up and becomes compassionate, we discover our fundamental unity Our common humanity. It seems paradoxical to say that people with disabilities have taught me what it means to be human, and that they are leading me into a new vision of society, a more human society. With and through them, I have discovered the joys of celebration, love, working and communicating together in mutual respect and in laughter. I realize more deeply how spirituality flows from being human, or rather how spirituality is being fully human and so shapes our lives and our humanity. I have discovered the value of psychology and psychiatry, how these skills can undo knots in us and permit life to flow again and aid us in becoming more truly human. I have myself experienced how religion can open us up to the universe, to the love of all humanity and especially to the source of all life and love, to a meeting with God. This meeting with God, I find, is not first and foremost for those who are most clever and honourable, but for those who are weak and humble and open to love. Tenderness is the language of the body as a mother holds her child or as a nurse touches the patient's wound or as an assistant bathes someone with severe disabilities. Recently, in a Buddhist monastery, I watched a sister, she served us food and tea with great delicacy. It was as if the meal itself was sacred, revealing a presence of God. And so it did, because it was treated so. Tenderness is the language of the body, speaking of respect. So touched the body honors whatever it touches. It honors reality. It does not act as if reality itself must be changed or possessed. Reality belongs to humanity and to God. Isn't this a way we should relate to all living beings, to plants, animals, and to the earth? Isaiah writes about the Messiah He will not cry out or lift up his voice or make it heard on the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a flickering wick he will not quench. There is no fear in tenderness. Tenderness is not weakness, lack of strength or sloppiness. Tenderness is filled with strength, respect and wisdom. In tenderness we know how and when to touch someone, to help them to be and to be well. Through my contact with Raphael and Philippe, the first two people I welcomed in L'Arche, and my many, many other teachers amongst the people with handicaps, I have in some small way learned to inhabit my body and to see it not just as a channel for therapy, but as a way of revealing my heart and of being in communion with others. I have alluded to the way in which communion has the power to reveal beauty and value to another, how it frees us to be truly ourselves, But this communion demands respectful listening to the non-verbal language of the other person. I say non-verbal because in the world of friendship and relationship, gestures normally precede the word. The word is there to confirm the gesture and give it its signification. I see now that this communion with people with disabilities and the tenderness implied has helped me to find a new inner wholeness, a unity between my affectivity and my intelligence. The way of the heart is a path of healing of our deepest affectivity and needs, through communion and gift of self. This healing, however, is never perfectly accomplished. There will always be a struggle. But if we are vigilant and prayerful, centred on truth and not seduced by riches, power, publicity, pleasure, and other psychological needs, then we will be able to continue on the path of healing. I am grateful to those with disabilities who have led me into this way of the heart, this way of healing. Antonio taught many of us at last the need to accept ourselves just as we are. Even though he was weak and fragile, suffering from multiple handicaps, he was truly a man of joy. This joy flowed through his smiling eyes and face, revealing an inner peace and serenity. Those of us with power and social standing have subtle ways of hiding our inner handicaps, our difficulties in relationships, our inner darkness and violence, our depression and lack of self-trust. When all is well, we may fall into conceit or pride. When there are difficulties or failures, we can fall into self-deprecation and depression. How difficult it is to accept our limits and our handicaps, as well as our gifts and capacities. We feel that if others see us as we really are, they might reject us. So we cover over our weaknesses. I've experienced my own limits at certain moments, times when I realized there was a great anger and violence rising up in me with respect to certain people with disabilities. Maybe it was because they seemed to be provoking me. Maybe their anguish and feelings of loneliness called for my full attention at a time when I was not able to give it. Maybe it was because I was not able to alleviate their screams and their anguish. Or maybe it was deeper than all this. Perhaps the anguish of those with mental handicaps awoke my own anguish, hidden in me since childhood. Some people with disabilities call forth tenderness in me others' anguish, fear, and anger. In a world of constant and often quite intense relationships, you can quickly sense your inner limits, fears, and blockages. You can feel the anger rising up in you. When I was tired or preoccupied, my inner pain and anguish rose up more quickly to the surface. In times of difficulty, it was hard to be open, welcoming, and patient. I've often come head-on with my own handicaps, limits, and inner poverty. I did not always find it easy, especially when my failure was evident to others. But then I began to realize that in order to accept other people's handicaps and to help them to grow, it was fundamental for me to accept my own. I have, after all, learned something about my own character. I'm gradually learning to accept my own shadow areas and to work with them in order to diminish their power over me. As I think back on my life, hidden in the secret recesses of my heart memory, I see or perhaps feel those who accepted and loved me just as I was. They did not judge me. There was unconditional love. Amongst those who freed me to be as I was and am was Father Thomas Philippe. What always warmed me were the waters of goodness that flowed from Father Thomas. He was a man of heart. He loved people and he helped many to discover their true selves. As I experience Father Thomas today in my heart memory, I feel the waters flowing from him, waters of forgiveness, waters that refresh, waters that help me to regain trust in myself and in my secret name, that is to say, in my mission in life, why and for what I was born. Father Thomas was truly free and he in turn truly freed others. To have an open heart which lets the waters of compassion, of understanding and of forgiveness flow forth, is a sign of maturity. Maybe once in our lives we will be fortunate enough to meet such a person. We feel cleansed, we have been affirmed, we discover our secret name. Then we too begin to walk towards greater freedom and to let waters flow onto others, healing them, And finding healing through them. I am touched when I read the prophet Isaiah. He says that to please God is to break unjust chains, to share your food with the hungry, sheltering the homeless poor. Then you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring whose waters fail not. Waters of compassion flow then from our hearts. The question we have to look at in later talks is how to find this free and compassionate heart which opens up to those who are different, how to move from a constricted, elitist concept of belonging, belonging which deprecates others, to this freedom of the heart which loves and appreciates those who are different. This is what my next lecture is about, Freedom of the Heart. In order to stand by the downtrodden and never to exclude but to include them in our lives, we need to be freed from our compulsive needs to succeed, to have power and approbation. We also need to be freed from the past hurts that govern our lives and cut us off from others. We all need to grow to freedom.
0: On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to Episode 3 of Becoming Human. The 1998 Massey Lectures, presented by Jean Vanier. Episode 4 will be broadcast tomorrow night on Ideas. Becoming Human is available as a book and as a set of audio cassettes. The book is published by House of Anansi and can be purchased in bookstores and by mail order from Ideas. The five audio cassettes of the programmes are also available. The cost is $21 for the book, $53 for the five cassettes, shipping and taxes included. That's $21 for the book, $53 for the five cassettes. Books and cassettes can be ordered from Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6, or by phone, 416-205-6010 and email ideas at toronto.cbc.ca. Becoming Human was produced by Philip Coulter and recorded by Dave Field. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sintler. And stay tuned to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news, followed by the arts today and between the covers.